We are six days away from the start of college football season. We have been, exactly, if that didn't excite you, we are nine days away from pumpkin spice latte season. So I figure one of, the, one of those will make you happy. You're either a college football fan, you're a pumpkin spice latte fan, maybe you're both, maybe both of those excite you. I don't know if you saw it this week, uh, but apparently this is a real thing. There is, in limited edition this fall, pumpkin spice spam. Just saying. They're reporting it as if it's a real thing. We have lost our ever-loving pumpkin spice mind when we get to pumpkin spice spam. But it is almost college football season. As a matter of fact, football season kicks off this Saturday with two games. Any Florida fans in the house? Good one. We had one in the first service. One, I'll introduce the two of you afterwards. Uh, yeah, we, we, Florida plays uh, Miami. Any Miami fans? No, no Miami fans. Right, Florida plays Miami, and then the late game is uh, Hawaii and Arizona. And then next Thursday, we have a whole list of college football games. Of course, the following Saturday is a full college football Saturday. But next Thursday, Big game, the highlight, let's be honest, the highlight of next Thursday night is your Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. Yeah, in the house. Against the Clemson Tigers. Tech fans, let me tell you something. This is from the heart. I mean it. I'm happy for your program. Like, I am so excited about your new coach, and you, you're not going to be running the middle school offense anymore. Like, you, you're going to be a real football team this year. You're going to have a real offense this year. What's that? Oh, what did I say? Yeah, you're not going to have a middle school offense going forward. And so, like, I'm excited for the trajectory of your team. Thursday night's going to be brutal. I, I just, I'm going to cheer for you, like from the depths of my, uh, my being. I'm going to be pulling for you. It's not going to do you any good. <laughs> not, it, it is going to be so awful for your little yellow jackets. And, and I say this as someone who can relate because they do it to my team every year too. They're, they're my team's in-state rival, and so they beat us up every year. And, and better days are coming, Georgia Tech. Yellow Jackets. But, but here we are. We're right at the beginning of this wonderful time of the year. College football season is getting ready to start. In sports, and in particular college sports, there is the concept of vacating. That's the term. Vacating. Now, what vacating is, is if it's discovered that your team cheated somehow. You broke the NCAA rules, uh, you paid players, some weird things going on with your coaches. Uh, the NCAA can step in and make you vacate your wins, either a particular win or a whole season of wins. There are teams who have had their entire season of wins vacated. Even if you win the championship, you have to take the banner down, you have to give the trophy back. You're not reported in the history of the NCAA as being the champion of that year. All of your wins get vacated. Now, when I was thinking about that this week, I, I Googled it online to try to find out who are the most recent teams who had wins vacated. Are there any Ole Miss fans in the house? 
I don't know why Ole Miss has a football team. That's the voice of a Mississippi State fan, by the way. I'll translate for the rest of you. Uh, six out of the last nine seasons, Ole Miss has had to vacate all of their wins. Like, why even play the games? Like, why bother? Just shut it down. So some rule was broken. The NCAA steps in and says, you don't get to keep those wins. Now, here's the problem with vacating. We all, we all understand the problem. The problem is those games actually happened. We actually saw those games. People went to those games. And they know somebody won and somebody lost. They know what the score was. If it's a championship team, like if they went all the way and won the championship before this cheating was discovered, they've already printed the t-shirts. People have already bought the t-shirts. They've already bought the hats. They've already celebrated. It has already happened. But the NCAA steps in and says, I know it happened. I know it was real. I know you saw it, but we're going to take it out of the record. It's no longer going to be in the record that you won, that you were the champion, that you had this many wins. Now, in a more positive way, this is what forgiveness does. Forgiveness is God saying, not I'm going to vacate all of your wins. Forgiveness is God saying, I'm going to vacate all of your losses. And they happened. We both know they happened. We both know what you did. We saw what you did. We were both there when you did it. We know the pain that you caused other people. We know that this happened. But God says, I'm going to remove it from the record. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, God offers vacating of our losses. Completely wipe out. We've talked in this series about being undefeated. God says there is going to be forever and ever a zero in the loss column for you. You will forever be undefeated because I am offering you total forgiveness of all of your losses and all of your mistakes and all of your sins and all of your disobedience. And then God turns and says, as I have vacated your losses, I want you to vacate the losses of the people who have hurt you, who have offended you, who have betrayed you. Now, that's the challenging part. If you're a pastor like I am, you have talked about forgiveness a lot, and I have. I've talked a lot about forgiveness we teach on forgiveness regularly if we're a pastor for a couple of reasons. And one is because we all know that it's needed. We all know that the forgiveness of God for us is needed. And at least on some level, we know that our ability to forgive other people is needed, at least in an idealistic sense, right? at least in sort of a theological big picture. Forgiveness is a good idea. For somebody, somewhere. We can all agree with that. We can all agree that somebody should forgive some other person for something they did sometime. That's a good idea. We should all do it. It's, it's needed. We all, we all agree that it's needed. It's much more difficult when it's me that needs to do the forgiving. That's the harder step, and that's why we talk about it. It's needed, and it's difficult. 
Now, it's not difficult for me to tell you that you should forgive. One of the perks of being a pastor is every seven days, I get to tell you stuff to do. It's one of the great things about my job. So I get to tell you, you should do this. You should live this way. That's not difficult at all. Trust me. What's difficult is me actually having to work through really deep emotion towards another person and offer them forgiveness and to realize that you are working through really deep emotion sometimes to vacate losses, to offer forgiveness. I get to hear about a lot of it as a pastor. One of the things that happens is that people will come and they will share their deepest burdens and they will open up about their most painful experiences and they will be really honest about the most heartbreaking of betrayals that they have felt in their life and they want you to listen and sometimes they want advice. The hard thing about those moments is there's not some little phrase that fixes all of that. These aren't wounds that are made better with Band-Aids and antibiotic. These are wounds that aren't made better with a clever little rhyming saying. Or even a Bible verse sometimes. As a matter of fact, sometimes we get to the end of this conversation and they're asking me, how do I forgive when this has happened? And I go, I, I don't know, because I want to punch the person in the face right now just after hearing this story. I, I have that same sort of visceral reaction that you have. And yet, we know. We know it's needed. And we know it's difficult. And we know it's the person God has called us to be. Now, as I said, I've talked about forgiveness many times. And as I was studying back through this, this idea this week, I think in the past I've, I've talked about forgiveness maybe from one Bible verse or maybe we were studying through a book of the Bible and we came to a passage about forgiveness or maybe we were studying a story from the Old Testament and it had a forgiveness theme to it and so we swerved into forgiveness because we were talking about that story. And, and this time I, I wanted to step back from one verse or one story or one book and I wanted to ask, what's kind of the arc of forgiveness in the Bible? What's the theme? What are the major topics that come up when we just think about forgiveness in general from Genesis to Revelation? What does that arc look like? And I was surprised. I was surprised to find that as a percentage, comparatively speaking, the Bible says very little about us forgiving each other. Very little. Percentage, comparatively speaking, to how the Bible talks about forgiveness. A very small part of the Bible's instruction is about me forgiving you and you forgiving me and us forgiving other people. And I don't get too excited. That doesn't mean we don't have to forgive. What the Bible highlights when it comes to forgiveness is God's forgiveness of us. In the Old Testament... There's almost zero references to us forgiving one another. There's the story of Joseph, and we'll come back to it in just a little bit. And Joseph works through a, a process and comes to forgive his brothers. That word is never used until the very end of Joseph. And, and 
even when it's used, his brothers are lying to him about something they made up that their father was supposedly said. Our father said, you're supposed to forgive us. It was a total lie. That's the only time the word's used in that story. Well, we know there was a forgiveness theme woven throughout the story of Joseph. Other than that, the Old Testament is, is fairly silent on us forgiving one another. Instead, it says things like this. This is Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. And you can multiply those two verses by a hundred or a thousand. We keep getting verses all throughout the Old Testament of God's great forgiveness of us. He pardons our sins. He, he forgives our transgressions over and over, this theme. The New Testament opens, and Jesus and some of the authors reference forgiving one another. But predominantly in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, the theme is you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. God has vacated your losses. Through Jesus, God's giving you a zero in the L column. Focus on that. Think about that. When you think of forgiveness, your first thought should be, God has given me this wonderful grace. This unbelievable forgiveness. Live in that. Let your mind keep coming back to that. Maybe before or maybe even instead of. Trying to work through the mental process of how do I offer this to somebody else. You have received so great a forgiveness in Jesus. Now Jesus as he's teaching us how to pray in Matthew 6, as he's going through the Lord's Prayer, he says this, praying to his Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then verse 14 and 15, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. He says in Luke 6, 37, forgive and you will be forgiven. Now, I think there's a wrong way to view those verses. Jesus is not saying that it's a one-to-one -one ratio with God. I forgave somebody, so God owes me some forgiveness. I forgave two people, God owes me two forgivenesses. It's not this trading with God. We're not earning forgiveness from God. I think what Jesus and the New Testament especially try to communicate is if you understand God's great forgiveness of you, then you will more and more become a person capable of forgiving others, capable of allowing grace to grow in your heart, peace to grow in your heart, capable of viewing others in need of God's forgiveness and your Forgiveness. Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story of a servant who was forgiven an insurmountable debt. There was no way he could ever pay back this debt. He was forgiven of that debt entirely. And then he went out and held another person responsible for a little bitty debt that he owed. And Jesus says, this, this is not the way the spiritual life works. Is that you who have received the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, that you should be always becoming 
more and more a person capable of extending the grace that you have received. Now, we could spend the rest of the time talking about how wonderful the idea of forgiveness is. And it is. We could talk about the ideal of forgiveness. We could use very church language about how we all should aspire to this goal. But I think we should talk about the tension of it because it's hard. And and sometimes when we speak of it in kind of this ethereal, theological mode, we strip it of some of the tension that we even find in the Bible when it comes to forgiveness. So here's some thoughts. First, forgiveness does not eliminate earthly consequences. That's not what we're saying when we talk about forgiveness. Or we could say, forgiveness does not eliminate earthly justice. Not that I'm imposing justice, but often there are consequences to decisions. Like we said, you could vacate games, they still happened. People were still there. There were still consequences. If you're a college athlete and you got injured in a game in 2016 and they vacated that game, you still got injured. Like You still feel the results of being in that game. It really happened. Forgiveness is not saying, well, there are no consequences now. Obviously, someone in prison can be forgiven by God. That doesn't remove the consequences, the justice, from an earthly perspective, their responsibility to the justice system. So this can't be what forgiveness means on earth. It can't be removal of consequences because it really Happen, And sometimes there are physical consequences, and sometimes there are emotional consequences, and sometimes there are relational consequences, and forgiveness does not magically take those away. Along the same lines, forgiveness is not denying our feelings. Forgiveness is not convincing myself that I'm not angry about this. Forgiveness is not convincing myself that it really wasn't that big of a deal, or they're not responsible Forgiveness is not trying to convince myself that it doesn't hurt. It's not convincing myself that I wasn't betrayed, that they didn't say those things, that they didn't do those things towards... It's not denial. Denial would be much easier. If I just denied anything happened, then I could go on oblivious and try to forget everything. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is so much harder. Forgiveness is being honest about what I feel. I am angry. I am bitter. I do resent. I was hurt. This was a problem. They were wrong. And letting those emotions come to the surface so that they can meet the air of the Holy Spirit, so that He can begin to work with those emotions inside of us, that this is why it's so difficult. That we have to face those feelings and give the Holy Spirit room to begin to work with those. Another thought about forgiveness. Forgiveness is often a marathon and not a moment. Forgiveness is often a marathon and not a moment. I mentioned Joseph. Old Testament, end of the book of Genesis. Some of you know the story. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers... As a young boy, he's 
thrown in a pit. He's ultimately sold into slavery, ends up in a foreign land in Egypt where he never expected to be. And now he never expects to see his family or his father uh, again. And here's Joseph separated from them, betrayed, mistreated. He becomes a servant in Egypt, gets thrown in jail for something he didn't even do, spends years in jail. And there is this 20-year evolution of Joseph from his betrayal to 20 years later. We see this moment where where Joseph has worked through some of that. Where Joseph is able to say, God was with me in the middle of that. God has allowed me to release the bitterness of that moment. It's not that it didn't happen. It definitely happened. Joseph's peace with what had happened is then tested because his brothers show up in front of him one day. And then they don't know it's him. He knows it's them. They don't know it's him. And he has the authority to do anything with them that he wants to do. And grace had so worked in his heart that he worked towards their, their good. Now, the question is, when was the moment in those 20 years that Joseph forgave? And I think the answer is, A, we don't know, and B, it was not a moment. It was 20 years. It was 20 years of wrestling with real gut-wrenching emotion, anger and bitterness and resentment and why. It was 20 years of that. It was 20 years of feeling like I'd taken a couple of steps forward and waking up the next day and feeling like I was at the starting block again. It's 20 years of this process of grace at work. And so if you think, certainly with the deepest hurts of our life, if you think one day you're going to wake up and the lights are all going to come on and you're just going to be able to offer forgiveness and grace, that's not the way it works. It is a steady process of the Holy Spirit working grace into our hearts. Listen, if, if it took Joseph 20 years to go through this process, it's going to take you more than 20 minutes. It's going to take us more than 20 days or 20 months. The question is, am I moving towards that? Am I, am I open to what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life to keep moving me towards grace? When I don't feel like offering grace right now. Next thought. Relational reconciliation is often dependent on repentance. And we don't talk about this a lot and sometimes we talk around it. Sometimes I've talked around it. Relational reconciliation is often dependent on repentance. This is true of God. We can argue whether... We should compare God and us in this way. But this is true of God. Forgiveness is offered by God. Relational reconciliation is dependent upon our repentance and turning to God. Relational reconciliation. I am right with God when I recognize my sin. When I recognize how many losses are in the L column of my life. 
how many times I've messed up and disobeyed, and I turn to him for forgiveness, and he vacates all of that. He takes it out of the record. But that relational reconciliation depends on repentance. Just think about it from the perspective of when we have offended someone, when we have hurt someone, betrayed someone, wronged another person. Our being reconciled fully to that person has to go through the step of me owning what I did. I hurt you. Now, unfortunately for us, we live in the day of the non-apology apology. Watch any politician, any celebrity, any athlete, when they're caught, they now very carefully with their lawyer's help, give a non-apology apology. This is what the non-apology apology sounds like. I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry if you misunderstood what I said. I'm sorry if you perceived it differently. I'm sorry that you didn't do the right thing. This is the non-apology apology. It's epidemic in our society. And there's no ownership of what I did was wrong. I'm coming clean. And I'm asking for forgiveness. So when you and I have wronged someone, reconciliation, forgiveness from that standpoint begins with me owning that and coming to you and saying, I'm sorry. I handled this poorly. I said the wrong thing. I reacted the wrong way. I did the wrong thing. Relational reconciliation. If there's to be a complete relational reconciliation, it's going to be because somebody comes and says, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? So then we have to ask, what if we're on the other side of that? What if we're on the side of the person who was wronged and the person who... Did the wrong, won't own it. They're not ever going to come back and say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I think we have to acknowledge two things. Number one, there's probably a limit to the relational reconciliation that can take place. There's probably a limit to the restoration that can take place between two people when there's been a wrong and nobody owns it. But we also have to own That if you've been wronged and you're not getting the apology, your heart can't stay there forever. Can't stay there forever. You can be honest about your feelings. It'll be a process of coming out of that. But by the grace and Spirit of God, you can't stay in that spot forever and ever. Our hearts... We're not made to bear the load of anger and bitterness and resentment. We just weren't made to bear that load alone. We weren't made to hold on to that forever and it not have consequences for us. And so like Joseph, who did not get an apology, like before he ever saw his brothers again, before they had a chance for any relational reconciliation, before any of that could happen, 
Joseph's heart had begin, begun to change because he knew 20 years is enough. I, 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 I can't bear this load forever and ever and ever. Listen, there are times that we do the hard work of grace. We, we do the hard work of asking the Spirit to help us with anger and bitterness and resentment for us, not for that person. For us. Because I don't want to be the person I will become if I keep holding on to this. Reality is, forgiveness changes the forgiver even if it doesn't change the one who's forgiven. Forgiveness, from a human standpoint, from an earthly standpoint, forgiveness changes the forgiver even if it doesn't change the one that's been forgiven. It works on my heart. It works on my relationship. It works on my outlook. It works on my perspective. It, it gets grace deeper into my life. And again, it's not flipping a switch. It's not hearing one message and going, okay, I'm done with that, walking out of here and everything being fine. It's the slow, steady, grace-led process of every day allowing the Spirit of God to teach our hearts. Why else would we stay in the process? Why would we wrestle through this hard work? Why would we bear the load when often the offender is not even bearing a load? Like they moved on. They, they don't think about us. And we're trying to carry the weight of all of this. And God is saying... Now, I, I want us to keep walking in this process so that your heart looks more and more like grace for you, not for that person. It may one day change that person, but it's got to change you. You've got to move more into the person that can pray what Jesus prayed. Forgive us our debts as we're becoming people who forgive others' debts and mean that prayer. Like mean that that I want to become that type of person. And I may not be that person right now, and I may struggle a lot with that. It may take me 20 years or 40 years or 50 years to become that person, but I want to become that person that reflects the forgiveness and the grace that I have received in Jesus. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things we do. And there's no sense pretending otherwise. It is one of the hardest things that we offer to ourselves or to someone else. And it's one of the most necessary things that we do. It's one of the most needed things for us to be in the process of, and so if that's you, if you're in that process, be patient with yourself. Be patient. That today, your heart might have a little bit more of God's Spirit than it did yesterday. That your heart might have a little bit more of the grace that's described in the Bible than it did yesterday. And you may take two steps back tomorrow, but you're not stepping out of the process. 
You're going to keep walking because it's a marathon. It's not a moment. For those little wins, those, those stretches of two days in a row, we did, you didn't get just absolutely angry. Know that you're in the process. Know that you're taking steps toward what Jesus prayed. I want to forgive in the way that I've been forgiven. And I don't know how to do that right now, but I want to keep taking steps towards it. It is one of the most important things we do in our spiritual life. Let's pray. God, all of us that have lived very long have been betrayed and hurt and some to an unimaginable extent. And we wrestle with this. It's not that we disagree that it's it's a good idea. We think it's a good idea. We think people should forgive. It's just that our specific set of circumstances are harder than we anticipated having to forgive. Remind us that as it was with Joseph, forgiveness doesn't happen in a moment most of the time. And it doesn't happen in a day or a week or a year or sometimes 10 years. But we want to be people who steadily take steps in the direction of grace of being those who find a way to forgive, who find a way to release to your Holy Spirit the depths of the emotions that we feel. They are real. Help us to give your Spirit access to those spaces, not to deny them, to name them, to bring them out, to give your Spirit room to work. However long he wants to work. So that we could pray what Jesus prayed. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Jesus' name, amen.